Good morning, Three Rivers. If you have a Bible, would you turn to the very first chapter in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. As we're beginning a new 14-year study of the book of Genesis. <laughs> Just kidding, hopefully it won't take that long. But uh, we are we believe in expository preaching, preaching through books of the Bible. And we're beginning a study of Genesis. And I will say that in my this week's intensive study of Genesis chapter 1 in creation, I see God creating light, sun, moon, and stars. But there is absolutely no indication of Him creating daylight savings time. Uh, that must be a creation of man and therefore is a product of the fall. So, we need the gospel this morning. So we're looking at Genesis chapter 1. And I do want to say this. It is physically and humanly impossible for me to cover... All of the topics that come up out of Genesis 1 in a 30-ish minute sermon. So, I'm encouraging you, I'm, I'm not going to be able to cover all of these things that I want to talk about. So what you must do is, in your radical life groups, go deeper. And take the time to talk about these things and the implications of, of what Genesis chapter 1 means for our lives. But, Genesis chapter 1, we're going to try to look at the whole chapter uh, but I'm, I'm just going to read the first two verses as we begin. So Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and 2. And today we're talking about the creation of the universe by the word of God. The creation of the universe by the word of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray together. Father, would you speak through your word this morning. And give us a, a greater vision of how big you are. And how small we are. Show us your glory today. And show us what it means that you are our creator. And we are the creature. So may that lead us to worship. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Genesis, as you know, is a book of beginnings. In ancient times, uh, when people would write a book, it was custom for them to name the book based on the very first word in the book. And that's what the Hebrews did with the book of Genesis. The very first three words in Genesis. Bereshit, Elohim, bara. Bereshit in the beginning, Elohim, God, bara, created. So they named the book Genesis uh, or Bereshit. Later, when the Old Testament is translated into Greek, they take the, the name Bereshit, translate it to Greek, and you get the word Genesis. Genesis literally means in the beginning. And so that's exactly what uh, the book is about. It's an appropriate name because Genesis is all about beginnings. It is the beginning of the very doctrine of God. Our understanding of God begins in the book of Genesis. Even in the first verse, we get a hint at the Trinitarian nature of God. Now, it's not explicit. Uh, the writer of, of Genesis is not trying to teach us everything about the Trinity. But it's laying the groundwork for our very understanding of who God is. The words God created are interesting. Because God is... In the plural, Elohim. And yet the word bara created is singular. 
So even in the very beginning, in some mysterious way, we see God in plurality working in unity. The Father is there in the beginning, initiating creation and decreeing that it would be so. In the beginning, God, His existence is assumed. You have the Spirit in verse 2, hovering over the waters. And Colossians tells us in John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and everything that was made was made through this creative Word, which we know to be the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us that through Christ all things are held together. So even in the beginning, the Trinitarian nature of God is hinted at. Later in verse 26, we get another hint when God says, let us... Make man in our image. Now it's good to be clear here. We do not worship three separate gods. We worship one God in three persons who all share the being of God. Father, Son, and Spirit. And if this is somehow mysterious to you. Good. It should be. Right? Uh, We should not fully grasp this. And yet we trust that scripture is clear about the nature of God. So. Genesis is the beginning of the doctrine of God. It's also the beginning of the doctrine of creation. Every pagan mythology and every form of idolatry is confronted in the first chapter of Genesis. Atheism is dismissed because clearly in the beginning we have a God who clearly exists before time. Polytheism, the view that there are many gods in the world, is denied because there is... Clearly, only one God, maker of heaven and earth. The idolatry of pantheism, this view that God is in nature and that nature is God, is clearly denounced because God is separate from nature because He is the creator of nature. This is what Moses faced in Egypt when he stood against Pharaoh. And by the way, it's good to remember, Genesis was first written for the people of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt, they needed to know who is this God that is leading them out of slavery in Egypt and into a promised land? Who is this God that is creating by the word of his mouth? If he is, if that power of his word creates the universe, how much more should we listen to his word when he gives the law? How would we dare rebel against the law of God by his word if this same word created the universe? And so Moses faces Egypt and stands in the face of Pharaoh. And each day of creation attacks one of the pagan gods of the day. So the Egyptians had many different gods. So on day one, the gods of light and darkness are dismissed. Because God is the creator of light. And so therefore light itself cannot be a god if it was made by the one true God. On day two, the gods of sky and sea. On day three, the earth gods and the gods of vegetation are denied because God made those things. On day four, the sun, moon, and star gods are denied. On day five and six, the gods of the animal kingdom and and humanity itself, those who would portray man as being God, such as Pharaoh. Man is not God because he is made in God's image. Now, at the same time, the Bible affirms that every person from the greatest to the least are made in the image of God. And yet we're confronted with a reality that at the same time, man is both wonderful and he is terrible. He is good 
and yet he is sinful. And so you have pantheism being denied by Genesis 1. The, the, the false teaching of deism, which was one of the main views of the, some of the founding fathers of our own country. The view that God is impersonal. And he doesn't intervene with the world. This view is destroyed as we read about a God who is intimately involved with his creation. And even walks with man and woman in the cool of the day. The God of naturalism or the false teaching of naturalism and materialism. The, the, the modern day view that holds to the theory of evolution and the fact that everything we see was made by something that was already made. This view is crushed. As Hebrews 11.3 says that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Genesis gives us the beginning of the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation. It is also the beginning of the doctrine of man. If you look at Genesis from a big perspective, it's divided into two parts. Genesis 1 through 11 is the story of primeval history. It's the story of how the world began. And then Genesis 12 through 50 zeroes in on one family. It zeroes in on the family of Abraham. And we're finding that... Man is made in the image of God, and yet he is capable of unimaginable wickedness that requires God to be his savior. So we get a view of who God is, but also who is man. Genesis also introduces us to the doctrine of salvation. We're going to get to Genesis 3 later, but we begin to see the beginning of God's plan to rescue mankind from the fall. And the last thing we see is that Genesis is the beginning of the Abraham's family and the nation of Israel. I love this quote from a guy named Richard Schultz. He says, the dominant theme in the book of Genesis is God's sovereign election, preparation, and preservation of a covenant family in order to counteract the devastating effects of sin. This is the story of how God not only created the world, but created a family the nation of Israel through which he would send a savior through the line of Abraham. And so Genesis is a book of beginnings, but I don't want us to miss the fact that Genesis is ultimately a book, not about man, but it is a book about God. I'm a huge fan of Marvel's Avengers movies, right? And I know there's a lot of Christians that are praying, Lord, come quickly, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but not before Infinity War comes out, right? Uh, we want to see that movie, right? And so... One of my, if you're not a superhero fan, I'm sorry, but one of my favorite moments is in the very first Avengers film, is when the Incredible Hulk is confronted with Loki, the god of mischief and deceit. And so the Hulk slams him through this glass window, they have this confrontation, and just as the Hulk's approaching Loki, Loki stops him and says, enough! You are all beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature, and I will not be bullied by, and at this moment, the Hulk proceeds to grab Loki by the feet and swings him back and forth over and over again and pummels him into the ground, leaving him in a pile of rubble. And the Hulk walks away and casually says, puny God. And it got me to thinking, Jim, sometimes I think the problem with Christians is that we gather each Sunday to worship what we have imagined as a puny God whom we can control and so our joy in God is diminished when we come to worship, not because we believe that God is too big, but because we have reduced him and now we have made him too small. Evelyn Underhill said a God small enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. 
J.D. Greer has just come out with a book and it's called Not God Enough. And it's based around this premise. J.D. Greer says this about himself and I think we could probably apply this to all of us. He says, I've come to see that the problem, my problem, my lack of faith, my passionless heart, and my struggle to surrender to God's will came from a fundamental deficiency in my vision of God. The God I imagined in my heart was not the same God who reveals himself through the scriptures. I had traded the true God for a much smaller version. May it not be so that we have reduced God to someone we can control and who acts according to our will. So let's come to this passage and come to Genesis not conforming God to our image, but but being conformed into the image that he creates in us. So a couple of things we need to say before we look at the text. Genesis does not seek to answer every question that we have about God. It doesn't tell us the age of the earth. So we're not going to talk about how old the earth is because I don't know. And God does not tell us. He doesn't tell us how dinosaurs came to be or how how they went extinct. It doesn't tell us the processes of microevolution and how species came to be where they are today. God does not tell us or Genesis doesn't tell us how God existed or when he created the world. It assumes his existence. And I would say here that there are many God-fearing, Jesus-loving Bible scholars who have come to different conclusions about the time it took for God to create the earth. And so we need to show grace to one another on secondary issues that should not affect fellowship and to which the Bible does not speak clearly about. The last thing I need to say here is that Genesis is ultimately seeking to show us what God is like. And nothing displays the glory of the Creator more than the display of His absolute power in creating everything that was made. This is why Psalm 8 verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. I've quoted this before, but John Piper says this in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. God made man small. And the universe big to say something about himself. And he says it for us to learn and enjoy. Namely that God is infinitely great and powerful and wise and beautiful. And the more the Hubble telescope sends back to us about the unfathomable depths of space. The more we should stand in awe of God. The disproportion between us and the universe is a parable about the disproportion between us and God. And it is an understatement. And so let's begin with the text. How do we see, what do we see about God? And what do we see about His glory in what He has made? The very first two verses is our first point, And we see that God transforms chaos into creation. He transforms chaos into creation. We're told here in verse 1 that in the beginning God creates the heavens and the earth. And then we're told something about the earth. Two things. It is without form. In other words, it's shapeless. And it is void. Or it is empty. We're told here that in this process of transforming, bringing order into chaos, God also brings light into darkness. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made 
And by the breath of his mouth, all their host, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God is bringing order into chaos. And what we find in this passage, as God looks at the, the, the chaos that is the earth at this point, there's no shape and it's empty. Scholars believe that this is not the beginning of everything. That in some way this disorder is a result of the fall of Satan. And so that Genesis is not even describing the creation of angelic beings. And that this disorder and this chaos that came about on the earth was not a result of God, but as a result of Satan's rebellion. And so in a sense, the, the, and if, if we look at the language that's used and, and other passages in Scripture, this is not just God creating heavens and earth and bringing order to chaos, but it's about Him bringing order to the destruction that the, that the, the angelic beings have brought. This is why God is separating darkness from light. It's interesting if you look at verse 3 and 4. I noticed this just last night as I was reading this passage again. Verse 3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. It's interesting that he doesn't call the darkness good. He only calls the light good. And so what we see is, yes, God is creating light from darkness and he's separating it. And he's he's creating the idea of time, the, the way that we measure time. He's doing all of those things. And yet he is bringing order into the chaos. God is a God of order. This is why we order our worship service. We we want to be orderly in the way that we do things. We're not just chaotic. This is why your pastors are working on a year-long plan to bring order and, and organizational leadership and trying to create a pipeline for how we order things. This is, this is how we imitate God as we bring order to chaos. This is why Paul tells the church in 1 Corinthians 14 that God is not a God of disorder or confusion, but He is a God of peace. So this is the first thing we see in verse 1 and 2. The two problems is that, that the earth is formless and it's empty. And God is going to bring order into this chaos. The second point we see is in verses 3 to 31. From verse 3 to the end of the chapter, point number 2 is that God creates everything by His powerful Word. He creates everything by His powerful Word. And here's a simple way for you to understand Genesis chapter 1. In the seven days of creation, God is basically doing two things. He is bringing form to the formless. And He is filling up what is empty. Remember in verse 2, those are the two main issues in creation. That the earth was without shape or without form. And it was void. It's empty. So verses 3 to 13, if you were to look at the six days of creation, verses or day 1, 2, and 3 has to do with His forming. And days 4, 5, and 6 have to do with His filling. And it's parallel. The writer of Genesis, we believe to be Moses, and Jesus said that it was Moses. I actually had a girl uh, that I wanted to date in seminary who said that she wouldn't date me because I believed Moses was the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. And this was before I was dating Jenny. And I said, 
we can get past that. I mean, that's not like set in stone, but that was like a deal breaker for her. But anyways, had to get that off my heart. Doggone it, I think he wrote the first five books. If Jesus said it, I'm going to believe it. But if you don't, it's okay. Anyways, Moses was intentional in the way that he wrote the first chapter of Genesis. And I didn't write all the statistics down, but even the number of times that the word day is used and the word God is used, it's all multiples of seven. There's intentionality in the writing. And there's intentionality in how parallel it is. So that day one actually corresponds to day four. What God forms in day one, He fills it up in day four. What God creates in day two, He fills it up in day five. What He creates in day three, He fills it up on day four. So there is symmetry here. There is forming And there is filling. The earth was formless, so God gives it shape. And there is emptiness, so God fills it up. And he's going to call all of it good. So there's symmetry here. On day one, light was created. And on the corresponding day four, there came to be the sun and the moon to rule the light. I think it's worth noting here that there are three days that go by with light but no sun. Where does the light come from? Well, we find that there is light other than a source from the sun. Isn't it interesting that the Bible begins and it ends with light coming not from the sun? The Bible begins with three days of light where God is the light. And he is the light of the world. And then the revelation ends with the same idea that there will be no need for sun because Christ himself will be the light of his people. And so the Bible begins, even from the beginning, with this idea of a separation between light and darkness. And God is separating light from darkness. So on day one, you have light being created. And in verse in day four, you have sun, moon and stars to to be the the carriers of that light. On day two, God creates the expanse that he calls the sky. And he separates the waters from above from the waters below. On the parallel day five, God fills up what he has made. He fills up the sky and the water with birds and fish. On day three, God separates the water from the dry land and he creates vegetation. And on day six, he fills up this empty earth with animals and with mankind. Now, we don't have time I hate this. We don't have time to even get to verse 26 and this commission that God gives man. In verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over fish and sea, birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're going to save this passage for next week as we zero in on the relationship of God and man. But take it to see that God is filling up what is empty. Right? So in verses 3 to 13, he gives form to what is shapeless. In verses 14 to 31, he fills up what is empty. And he pronounces that he has made it all as good. You'll notice that in every day there is a repetition that he called it good. It is good. It is good. This is the great artist stepping back to admire his handiwork. 
Creation is good, it is perfect, and it is God's will being accomplished. And that is what he desires. John Calvin said that the goodness of creation should lead us to praise the creator. He said from, from the tiniest, uh, from the smallest flower to the, to every tint of color that you see, it should lead you to praise of God. The earth is tilted at 23 degrees exactly, which gives us our seasons. If it were tilted any more or less, life itself would end on this planet. Vapors from the ocean would move north and south, piling up continents of ice. If our moon was just a little bit closer or further away, our tides would daily flood entire continents. God made everything and He made it in a certain order so that life would be sustained. And He steps back and He says, this is good. In other words, this is, this is acting exactly how I intended it to be. And what this should lead us to is praise, right? I asked my wife and my two-year-old son to, to tell me some things that God made that's good. And you never know what you're going to get when you ask people those questions. So there's just a list of things and we can stay here all day just praising God for the good things and creation that he's made. Here's a few. Praise him for marriage. Praise him for flowers, bacon, and coffee. Y'all, I can preach and do the amening, but it's going to take twice as long, right? Bacon and coffee. Alright, he made whales. And he put a blowhole on the top so that they could breathe. Even living in the water. He made children and mountains and rain. He made oceans with sand, with a beach that we could lay on and get burnt, right? For fun. He made Mount Everest and he made the Grand Canyon. He made Niagara Falls and the Redwood Forest and the Rocky Mountains. He calls stars into existence. He makes tigers and electricity and ocean waves and radio waves and microwaves. He makes love and taste and chocolate and warm fires and snow for sledding and snowmen and snowball fights. He makes gravity and he makes epidurals. Sports and seasons, ladybugs, birds, bees, and birds and the bees. He makes trees that provide oxygen and tree houses and toilet paper. <laughs> Amen. Cotton, the fabric of our lives. He makes music. He makes brains and ears for us to enjoy that music and eyes and water and hot tubs and pizza. And he gives us our mouths to communicate, to sing, to laugh, to shout, to eat, to kiss and to praise him for every good thing that he has graciously given to us. It is good and it is for our enjoyment. And that enjoyment is ultimately to lead us beyond enjoyment of creation to ultimately enjoy the creator. How does this chapter end? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The, the seventh day is a little different. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Third point I want us to see. Is that God completes his creation with a blessing of holiness. He calls it holy. Now, when you read that passage and you see the language that God rested from his work. I don't want you to read that and think that God got tired. 
The word rest here is the same word that's used for the Sabbath day. This was the principle for the Jewish people to have a day out of the week when they ceased from their labor. A a better understanding of this word for us is not rest, like I need to take a nap. I worked hard all week, so I need to rest. Resting in, in the Old Testament is an idea of ceasing from labor to enjoy your work. It's the guy who builds something, builds a doghouse and steps back and says, man, look what I made. He's just enjoying it. He, he builds, uh, it's Christian Esme building a swimming pool and stepping back and enjoying what he did. I made that. That's my work. That's my handiwork. It's not, wow, that was tired and I need to take a nap. It's enjoying. And God ceases from his work to enjoy it and to call it Holy. This is what the word Sabbath means. Sabbath describes the enjoyment of accomplishment, the celebration of completion. And this not only carries over to the Israelites who were commanded to celebrate a Sabbath day, but this has implications for us as Christians. I want you to notice that the seventh day of creation is never actually completed. How does every other day of creation end? If you look back through Genesis chapter 1... Uh, look at, uh, for instance, verse 5. Day 1. How does it end? God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And here's this phrase. And there was evening and morning the first day. And then if you go down to verse 8, the second day, it says there was evening and there was morning the second day. And so on. Verse 13, there was evening and morning and the third day. And so on. But you get to the seventh day, and it doesn't say that there was evening and morning And the seventh day was over. This has theological implications for us because as Christians, we are continually living in a day of rest. Jesus teaches this, and even in the book of Hebrews, that Christ has become our Sabbath rest. Our Sabbath is not just taking a Saturday off from our hard work during the week. But for Christians, the Sabbath is a ceasing from our good works as merit towards God and instead living a life of holiness and enjoyment of God's blessings. The Sabbath day has gospel implications. You understand that to get right with God, you don't have to earn it. You're not meriting it through your work or your achievement, but you are ceasing from your work so that by faith you trust in God's goodness that's already been given to you. Are you ceasing from your work? Now, let me let me just say this is something pastoral too. I, I didn't have this down, but I think I need to share this. Uh, this passage was helpful for me too when you realize that God is not just the creator of days one through seven. About a month ago, I, I had the flu all week and uh, woke up from the flu on Friday, first day out of bed, and got a call from the HR office at Shorter where I worked and was told that I was being let go. So in the, this is not a secret, but in, in that same day, getting over the flu, being let go from your job. And by the way, I, I would be the first to say that there are people even in this church who are suffering from far worse than what I've had to go through of losing a job or uh, or having the flu. Right. But in those days, you tend to reflect a little bit and you can't help but ask, Lord, what happened? What, what's going on? And at this time, I was studying Genesis chapter one. And, uh, and this was confirmed later when uh, Mitch and I were talking that day. And he said, brother, I want you to know that, that this day was created by God. This is God's day and he intends it for your good. 
It was a pastoral thing, and it was based on Genesis 1. Somebody needs to hear this this morning, that God is not just the creator of days 1 through 7, and he just washes his hands and he's finished. He created day 8, too. And day 9, and day 10. And on your worst day, the day when you struggle to wonder, is God really in control of my life? He created that day, too, for your good. He's the creator of all days. And he has good intentions for it, and he calls it good. So how do we apply this? What, 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 what applications do we make here? What we find is that we trust in a God who changes darkness to light. Who changes death to life. Chaos to blessing. A God who is absolutely sovereign over all life and all pagan ideas that would fight for our allegiance. And we worship a God who works by his powerful word to create, to redeem, and to sanctify And it's through obedience to this powerful word, either the written word or the living word, our Savior, who will transform believers into his glorious image. When we think deeply about creation, it should lead us to think of Christ. The work of creation is a correction of chaos, emptiness, formlessness, darkness, and the deep are replaced or altered with a creation that's pronounced good and is blessed by God. God breaks through the darkness with His light, bringing good over evil. He sets about making divisions from the darkness and the deep. He provides fertile land that will be heavily vegetated. He designates appointed times and seasons for the ordering of the cycle of life. He blesses the earth with all kinds of living creatures and creates human life in His own image and gives them the blessings of fertility, commanding them to be fruitful and multiply and to rule and have dominion over the earth. And what does God do? He reveals himself to people like Abram later and later Israel. And he continues this pattern of creation. He separates them from the darkness of this evil and chaotic world. He orders the Jewish people's lives around seasons. This is why they have festivals to remind them of certain seasons of the year. This is why, as Jim mentioned, we're in the season of Lent. Later we'll be in the season of Easter tide and Pentecost and later in the year we get to Advent. We have these seasons that God has built in to order our lives around. He tells the people of Israel to be fruitful and to multiply and he enables them to have dominion over the earth to be his image bearers to the pagan nations. Does this sound familiar to the New Testament? God continues to bless the world by revealing himself to his people through his son. Who then creates a new people for himself through the church. This is why the Bible calls you and me new creations in Christ. We are the creative work of God. This is what Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6. It says, so the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has also shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, the same way God spoke light into creation and separated light from darkness is the same way you were converted to Christ when God looked at your dark heart and spoke light so that you could see the glory of Christ. Not only that, but God brings order to the chaotic world through the church. He begins to form a new people in order to fill them with His Spirit. He doesn't just form us, but He fills us. He he creates us and fashions us in His image, and then He fills us with His Spirit to empower us. He gives us a helper, a helpmeet. Just like He gave Adam Eve, He gives us the Holy Spirit for the ultimate purpose of sending us as lights 
into the darkness. To take dominion over the world by expanding the rule of God's kingdom by preaching the gospel. And so we want to share this good news with others. And we want to spread this good news to the world. So that Habakkuk 2 verse 14 will be true. That the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is what creation demands of us today. That we as creatures would worship our creator. Revelation 4 comes to this, this conclusion at the end of time as the angels and elders gather around the throne and their worship is based around creation. Revelation 4 verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And so this this passage in Genesis 1 cannot help but lead us to look not just to the creator, but to look to Christ. So I would I would turn your attention now, not just to the scripture, but to the one whom the scripture points to that Christ is our creator. As John one says, in the beginning was the word and through that word, all things were made through him, by him and for him. Christ is our creator and he's also our light. He is the one that came as the light of the world. He said in John eight, verse 12, I'm the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is our creator. He is the light in our darkness. He is the one who brings order to the chaos of our lives. If your life is dark and desolate today, if your life's out of control, there's hope for you. The very same power that flung the stars out into the unfathomable expanding universe while at the same time orchestrating the very life and the complexity of the cells in your body. The very power that holds every atomic particle together this morning is the same one who will save you if you'll come to him. He'll turn your night into day with one word. He will reorder your broken life with a word. He will bring form To your life out of chaos. And he will fill up what is empty in your life with his word. Christ is not only the light. He's not only the creator. And he's not only the son of God. He is the savior of the world. This very one who created constellations. Who orders the cell. Who sustains every atom. Came and died on the cross for your sins. This is the one who will save you. He can bring a genesis to your life. This is what he came to do. And I would urge you, if you have wandered in here today and you have never understood this before, I want you to realize there's hope for you. There is creation power that can recreate your life. There is eternal life that will turn the midnight of your life into daylight. This is our God. He gives form. He reorders life. He brings light to darkness. He fills up what is empty. And he will do it for you. And so we come to this passage, Psalm 95. Three rivers come, let us worship and bow down and let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. We don't do public invitations here typically, but I would invite anyone here who has come into this church and you have recognized you're living in darkness and you need the light. We'll have pastors in the back. I'm going to be standing back there today. If you need to talk about your soul and talk about your relationship with Christ, we're available to pray with you. We'd love to speak with you. But for the rest of us who are in Christ, we have great reason to worship today. So I would urge you to respond to the word of God as we worship and singing to him.
for His glory. And may your joy be full today as you see the bigness of God. Let's pray together. Father, You are the creator of the universe. You are the one who made us. And as we slept last night, You sustained us. You're the one who woke us up this morning. You're not only our creator, but you're our savior. So, Father, increase our joy today as we worship you. Father, for the person today who may be lost and their life is in chaos, they are ruled by darkness and sin. Would you shine the light of the glory of Christ in their hearts and cause them to repent of sin and believe the gospel today? Father, make us a people who do not minimize you and and lessen your glory by creating a puny God in our minds. But let us see you for all that you're worth, the maker of heaven and earth. Help us worship you and sing with great joy today in Jesus' name. Amen.